from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the Head of Research and Programs at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, and I'm here with Steve Winnick, a Folklife Specialist at the Center and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. Hi, folks. March is both Irish American Heritage Month and Women's History Month, so we thought we'd do an episode about recordings of Irish American women in the archive. A few years back, just before the pandemic, we did an event here at the Library of Congress saluting Irish American women and put together kind of a sampler of music and songs for the event. Our director, Betsy Peterson, participated in that event. She's a longtime radio person herself like us, so we thought it might be fun to have her here to talk to you. So here she is. Welcome, Betsy. Hey, John and Steve, and hi, all listeners out there. Hi, Betsy. Um, now, there's also some news that you have, uh, and we might as well get this out of the way. Um, go ahead. Tell us the big news, Betsy. Well, the big news is that I'm retiring at the end of this month and moving back to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I won't be in Washington running the American Folklife Center anymore. And I'll say that for full disclosure, John and I knew this already, so we are not shocked and sitting here <laughs> with our jaws on the floor. But we are certainly going to miss Betsy. So, Betsy, what has it been like running this crazy place with crazy people like us? Well, I guess I prefer to think of the crazy people as quirky people. And it's easy because everyone is so wonderful. Now, of all the things you've done during your 10 years directing the center, um, what do you think stands out as your biggest accomplishment, most memorable? It's difficult to think of just one accomplishment or 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 one special thing. There have been so many moments like that. But one thing I'm very proud of was being able to work with the late Peter Bartas, a staff member of the American Folklife Center, who was very generous in providing support to start a, a American Folklife Center paid internship program. And so Peter and I were able to sit down and really talk about it and think through how to develop and shape the program. And that was very exciting to me um, to be able to do that uh, and provide opportunities for, for um, at this point, six uh, people to come and work here for a summer, uh, learn how to do cultural documentation, how to be a folklorist and learn about what folklorists do and what the American Folklife Center does. That's it's very special. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of us owe a lot to Peter Bartis's generosity over the years. For me, that started before I even got to AFC. Um, I've known Peter for a long time, and um, and we really miss him, the late Peter Bartis, we should say, yeah. And of course, we should also say that you approved our first blogs and podcasts, so we've come a long way with your guidance as well. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't be here today, literally, uh, if it weren't for for you approving this process and many of the other things that we do. So thank you, Betsy. Um, and I guess we should talk about the Irish American Women event. So what do you remember about that? The event was held on February 6, 2020, um, right before the beginning of the pandemic. And it was called Fearless, a tribute to Irish American women. 
The live event featured an onstage conversation in the Coolidge Auditorium among the award-winning novelist Alice McDermott, Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, and CBS anchor Margaret Brennan. As extended programming surrounding the stage part of the event, staff from four library divisions were asked to develop a display of items related to the event that would facilitate connections and discussion and engage the public with diverse collections. The American Folklife Center's contributions took two forms, a display of collection items for the public curated by staff member Melanie Zeck and a curated mix of field recordings put together by you, Steve. We gave these recordings to the VIP guests. Yeah, that was a really fun event. And I, I sometimes wonder what, what would have happened if we'd uh, schedule that event for like St. Patrick's Day, and <laughs> it, I guess it never would have happened. So it's, it, it would have gone right past us. It's, right? Yeah. yeah, it's lucky that we did it in February. Now, as part of this event, Betsy, you actually played one of the recordings for the audience and the guests in the Coolidge Auditorium that evening, and it was a pretty moving moment. Can you describe that for us? Well, I played a field recording of Maggie Hammond's Parker, and she was born in the 19th century and passed away in the 1980s. And I think the recording of her voice, um, I think of it as a living link that connects our lifetimes now and the past. And so since this is a tribute to Irish American women, I'll tell you a little bit more about her. Maggie was part of an important family of tradition bearers from West Virginia who were documented in the 1960s and 1970s by Library of Congress field workers, Alan Jabor and Carl Fleshauer, among others. Alan was the founding director of the American Folklife Center, and Carl only recently retired from the library, so I knew both of them and know both of them well. Maggie's siblings were all singers, musicians, and storytellers. She was known for her enormous repertory of songs, family legends, and humorous stories. She also played banjo in two-finger style and in frailing style. In Pocahontas and Webster Counties, West Virginia, she was also celebrated for her extensive knowledge of herbal cures and other folk medicine. So she really was an impressive and important woman in her community. When she was documented in the 1970s, she was a widow living in Stillwell, West Virginia, with three of her widowed or unmarried siblings, her brother Burl and her sisters Emma and Rui. So let's hear Maggie sing a little bit of Ireland's Green Shore. On the banks of some Coburn stream, I sit down on a bed of primroses. I gently fell into a dream. I dreamt that I saw a fair female. It is equals I never saw before. As a sight for the laws of our country. As we stray here on Ireland's green shore, her cheeks was like two blooming roses. 
Thirty squirrels like thy breeze so white. Her eyes shone like two sparkling diamonds. Her the stars on some cold frosty night. She was dressed in a rich of As we stray here on Ireland's green shore. So again, that was a clip of Maggie Hammond's Parker singing Ireland's Green Shore. And that's a 19th century Irish broadside lyric, an adaptation into the English language of an earlier Gaelic form of political song known as the Ashling or Dream Vision. And in the genre, the narrator dreams of encountering a beautiful woman who is revealed as the soul or personification of Ireland. And she often laments the political situation or the poverty of the Irish under colonial rule. The song is often known as Erin's Green Shore, and under that title you can find both a broadside and sheet music on the Library of Congress website, and all of this is linked from the blog associated with this podcast at blogs.loc.gov slash folklife. It's interesting that this song is usually associated with the Irish Catholic culture that became firmly established in America in the mid-19th century, but as we can see, it also became popular in the Appalachians among descendants of Scots-Irish and German Protestants like Maggie Hammonds and her family. And we should also tell everyone that Maggie Hammonds Parker's version of Ireland's Green Shore inspired the great bluegrass and Americana artist Tim O'Brien to perform two different versions of the piece, one with vocals and another that was instrumental. And those can also be heard by going to the blog. So, um, Betsy, what can we say? Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and thanks for leading the American Folklife Center for over a decade. Yes, thanks for everything you've done for us over those years, including greenlighting this very podcast. My honor and pleasure, and thanks for having me. So one thing I noticed in the blog was an absolutely iconic Irish tune that celebrates Irish women and was played by an Irish-American woman. Which one was that? The Irish Washerwoman. Oh, yeah, that's a great old tune. So what do you remember about the blog version? Well, this was played by a woman named Hattie Scott Gould, who at the time of the recording in 1939 was known as Mrs. Ben Scott. WPA folk music collector Sidney Robertson recorded her at her home in Turlock, Stanislaus County, in the Joaquin Valley. And in her field notes, Robertson recounted a touching story about Hattie's family's support for her musical aspirations. So I'll read a bit of it. Quote, she learned to play the fiddle as a child in the foothills of the coast range east of the Salinas Valley. There was an old violin in the family which her older brothers encouraged her to play by equipping it gradually, one string at a time. When she could manage the G string, they saved up enough to buy her a D. When she could get around on those two strings, they added the A and so on. She played on that fiddle for several years before it had all four of its strings, and she hasn't yet forgotten what a great moment it was when at last her fiddle was as complete as anybody's. Huh, that sounds like an amazing way to learn. Yeah, and she got to be really good. Sidney Robertson wrote more about her, saying that she competed successfully with men in fiddler's contests all over California. And she said that, quote, you can't keep both feet on the ground when Mrs. Scott begins to play. 
Well, that sounds like a cue to hear the tune, so let's hear Hattie Scott Gould. So the Irish washerwoman, which we just heard, is probably the stereotypical Irish jig. And um, Irish music absorbed tunes over the years from a lot of different European traditions and absorbed instruments, too. So we've got a really nice recording of Irish concertina playing from May Mulcahy in Butte, Montana. And I thought we'd invite our own staff concertina player, Jennifer Cutting, to talk about it. So everyone, welcome, Jennifer. Hi, folks. Hey, Jennifer. Uh, What can you tell us about the concertina? Well, I can tell you way too much about the concertina because I'm a concertina nerd. But here's the quickie two-minute explanation. A concertina is a squeeze box that's usually shaped like a hexagon or an octagon. So it has end plates that look like, you know, a stop sign with parallel rows of little buttons on both ends. So the concertina we're talking about today, the one usually used in Irish music, has metal reeds inside that look like thin little strips of flexible steel that are attached at only one end, and the other end is free to vibrate when you squeeze the bellows to blow air across it and set it in motion. And the buttons allow you to choose which notes you want to sound. So when you press a button, it raises a little lever that uncovers the corresponding valve, lets the air pass through, and set the reed vibrating to sound the note. It works just like blowing air through a blade of grass in your cupped hands, if you've ever done that when you're outside. Now, in Ireland... The concertina was often the instrument of choice for women musicians. It's possible that this started because a lot of concertinas are smaller and lighter than button accordions and piano accordions, but it was also just a a social convention. So it's no surprise to find that one of the best Irish concertina players in our archive is a woman. Great. Tell us about her. May Mulcahy, as Steve said before, was part of the large Irish-American community in Butte, Montana. And in 1979, she was visited by field workers Gary Ward Stanton and Paula Johnson, who recorded a three-part interview with her for the Montana Folklife Survey Project. It's a very wide-ranging interview. It covers her music, dance, and food traditions. Now, Mrs. Mulcahy had been devoted to traditional dancing and to music, and she'd been an even 
better concertina player in earlier years. At the time of the interview, May had suffered a mild stroke and couldn't dance and play as easily as she once could, but still she played some great tunes. And Paula and Gary not only made interview recordings, but they also took photos of May with her concertinas. And from these photos and recordings, it looks and sounds to me like May played the 20-button CG Anglo-German concertina. Anglo-German concertinas are just called Anglo-concertinas for short. Now, this system of concertina plays different notes on the push and different notes on the pull, a lot like the way a harmonica works, if you've ever played one of those. One set of notes when you exhale into it, a different set of notes when you inhale. And in this interview excerpt, May Mulcahy plays two tunes on her concertina and talks a little bit about the tunes. The first is a polka that she called Nori from Gibberland, which is also known in Ireland as Maureen from Gibberland, but it goes by several other titles as well. It's considered by many to be a variant of the tune The Rose Tree, which makes it also related to the American fiddle tune Turkey in the Straw. And it's used in Ireland for set dances, especially in of Lucra, the region that includes East Kerry, Northwest Cork, and West Limerick. And that area is so famous for their many polkas. Speaking as a squeeze box player, this tune sits really well and sounds particularly bouncy on a push-pull instrument like May Mulcahy's concertina. May's second tune is often called Put Your Little Foot Right There. It's one of the most common tunes in our archive under many names. In the American Southwest, including Texas and New Mexico, it's commonly used to dance a waltz or Varsuvian. Great. Let's hear a snippet of that interview and the music. What would be some of the tunes you might play for a shindig? Well, I play this one here. This is Irish. That's called Nori from Gibberland. Nori from Gibberland? Mm-hmm. It's Irish. Huh. And they all dance all around. They do Irish sets, you know, with that. Huh. Jeez. Well, yeah. that's a pretty tune. Yeah. Would, would you play together with other, like, would there be a person playing piano at the same time? Oh, yeah. My, my daughter and me play beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, I, I play right with her. Yeah. Then, but I'd like to, if there was a fiddler come over, would he? Would you? And sure, him play if he could get on the same key, there we could play. Sure. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the other tunes that you'd play? The Irish tunes like that. That was that's a pretty tune. You like that one? Yeah. yeah. Well. How about Tullamore? He used to play that one. Well, I'll play the civil one,
tall out or your little foot or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We just heard May Mulcahy with Nori from Giberland and put your little foot right there. And I love that last tune because, as Jennifer said, it's really common in the archive and not just from Irish Americans. In fact, many of the versions we have come from Spanish speaking musicians, including Lottie Espinosa from California and Nieves and Ernestina Anaya, who were a father daughter duo from New Mexico. So it's kind of neat to have tunes that cross those musical cultures. Definitely. And one last thing I love about Mrs. Mulcahy. I posted a picture of her with a link to her music on our American Folklife Center Facebook page recently, and her granddaughter commented on it saying, that's my grandma. Oh, that's always so great to hear from family members of our performers. Indeed. Now, Steve, I remember that one of the songs on the selection was the subject of two extensive blog posts by you. Oh, I think you must mean Arthur McBride by Carrie Grover. That's the one. Uh, can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, So Carrie Grover was born in 1879 in Black River, Nova Scotia, and she had Irish, Scottish, English, and Welsh ancestors. And her father and mother were both singers, and they sang traditional songs, uh, both separately and together. And the family moved to Bethel, Maine when Carrie was 12. So for most of her life, she lived in Maine. Um, And in later life, she recalled an incident from her childhood that had a real impact on her. She overheard her father tell her mother that after they were gone, no one would sing the old family songs anymore. And that really made her sad, and it encouraged her to learn as many songs as she could, and also to write out the words of her songs in a book so she could pass them on to others. And um, one of the songs that Carrie's father sang was Arthur McBride, and she believed that her aunt, that is her father's sister, also sang this song, which made it likely that they learned it from her grandmother, who was a singer with a large repertory of folk songs. Now, Arthur McBride is a ballad that scholars believe was composed in the northern part of Ireland, most likely County Donegal, in the early 19th century, and it tells the story of young Irishmen resisting the attempt of a recruiting party to conscript them into the British army. Um, And as such, it's a song of Irish resistance to English imperialism. Okay, so how did the song end up here in the archive? Well, Carrie Grover was one of those star performers who knew how valuable her songs were. And we've had a few of those people over the years. They don't wait for collectors to find them, but instead they come looking for collectors themselves. And so in December 1940, after hearing Alan Lomax on the radio, Carrie Grover wrote him a letter at the Library of Congress introducing herself and telling him about her family's songs. And the two began a chain of correspondence that lasted at least until Lomax left the library, and they became quite friendly. So at one point, she insisted that Lomax, who was 26 years old at the time, address her as Aunt Carrie, which he dutifully did after that in all of his letters. So in April 1941, she took a trip to Virginia and to Washington, D.C. to visit her niece, and then she continued on to New Jersey to visit her son. And during this trip, she was recorded by Lomax in the library's recording lab, and then by Sidney Roberts and Cowell at her niece's home as well as her son's home. And then later, she was recorded and photographed by Eloise Hubbard Linscott, and those materials also came to the library as part of her collection. So altogether, she contributed 88 songs and fiddle tunes to the archive, And there are also some great photos, which you can see on the blog. 
And Arthur McBride was one of the tunes recorded by Alan Lomax in April 1941 in the Thomas Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress. Let's hear it now. Oh, me and me cousin went after McBride as we were walking down by the seaside. Now mark what followed and what did be tied, it being on Christmas morning. Out for recreation, being on a tramp, we met Sergeant Napper and Copper Vamp, and a little drummer intending to camp, the day being pleasant and charming. Good morning, good morning, the sergeant did cry, the same to you gentlemen, we did reply, intending no harm, but meant to pass by, it being on Christmas morning. Says he, my fine fellows, if you will enlist, Five guineas in gold that will slip in your fist And a crown in the bargain to kick up a dust And drink to your health in the morning The soldier he leaves, leads a very fine life He always is blessed with a charming young wife He pays all his debts without sorrow or strife And always lives pleasant and charming The soldier he always is decent and clean While other poor fellows go dirty and mean while other poor fellows go dirty and mean, and sup on burgoo in the morning. Now, says Arthur, you needn't be proud of your clothes you have, but the loan of a mad, I suppose. You dare not change them one night to your nose. If you do, you'll be flogged in the morning. Although that we are single and free, we take great delight in our own country. We have no desire, strange faces to see. Although that your offers are charming. We have no desire to take your advance. All hazards and dangers we barter on chance. You'd have no scruples to send us to France, where we would be shot without warning. Oh, then, says the sergeant, I'll have no such chat. I neither will take it and spalp in your brat. For if you insult me in one other word, it is that very moment I will draw my sword and drive it through your body, if strength does afford, and cut off your head in the morning. Then Arthur and I, we soon drew our hods, and scarce given time for to draw their blades, when a crusty shillelagh came over their heads, and bade them take this as fair warning. Their old rusty rapers that hung by their side, we flung them as far as we could in the tide. Oh, take them out, dibbles, cried Arthur McBride, and temper that reds before morning. We having no money paid them off in cracks, and paid no respect to their two bloody backs. For we welted them there like a pair of wet sacks, and bade them take this as fair warning. Oh, the little drummer, we flattened his pow, and made a football of his tower we dow, threw it in the tide to rock it a row, and bade it to us returning. And then to conclude and to finish disputes, we obligingly asked if they wanted recruits, for we were the lads who would give them hard clutes and bid them look sharp in the morning. Again, that was Carrie Grover's Arthur McBride. It also had an effect on popular folk music, both in Ireland and the U.S., didn't it? Yes. So after her trip, uh, Carrie Grover continued to advocate for herself and her family songs. And with the help of her old school in Maine, the Gould Academy, she published the words and music to many of her songs in a book called A Heritage of Songs in 1953. We have this in our reading room, for example, as a reference copy. So fast forward then about 20 years to 1973. The most popular Irish folk group of the time was the Johnstons, and they broke up at the end of an American tour. 
And that left the Irish folk singers Mick Maloney and Paul Brady here in the U.S. And Mick famously stayed and was one of our field workers a few years later, which we'll talk about later in this episode. But Paul just stayed a year or so, and he was lodging with some American friends. And while he was staying with them, he saw a copy of Carrie Grover's book. And his eye fell on Arthur McBride, and he recognized it as an obviously Irish song, and he kind of fell in love with it. So he wrote a guitar arrangement for it, and when he went back to Ireland, he joined the band Planksty, and he found that his arrangement of Arthur McBride was very popular with their audiences. Then in 1976, during a Planksty hiatus, Paul Brady and Andy Irvine made a duo album on which Paul finally recorded his version of Arthur McBride, and it became kind of an underground classic, not not just in Irish music, but but outside as well. So For example, the American guitarist John Leventhal made a mixtape for Roseanne Cash when they were dating, and he put Arthur McBride on it. (laughs) She says it made her want to marry him. (laughs) So so that worked out. Um, And then finally, in the 1990s, um, Paul Brady's version was covered by Bob Dylan on his album, Good As I've Been To You. So that's quite a journey for Carrie Grover's song. Wow, it is. Did... Paul Brady or Bob Dylan credit Carrie Grover on their albums? Unfortunately, they didn't, although Paul Brady always acknowledges the source if you ask him. So Carrie Grover's name never got that well known, which is unfortunately a shame. True. But on the other hand, Carrie Grover's mission wasn't so much to be remembered herself, but to make sure her songs were remembered. So Paul Brady and Bob Dylan helped her with that mission, even if they didn't acknowledge her. Exactly. And now on our blog and in this podcast, we're trying to boost the signal and reattach her name to the song. Uh, Of course, on the blog, you'll find links to the Paul Brady and Bob Dylan versions as well. That's blogs.loc.gov slash folklife. We're also happy to say that others are working to promote Carrie Grover's legacy. So in particular, the singer and scholar Julie Mainstone has created a whole website and podcast devoted to Carrie Grover's songs, which is also linked from the blog. Uh, That's great. Now, I think we have one more guest who's going to join us. That's right. One of our great reference team worked with us on the Irish American Women's event back in 2020 and specifically put together the visual display of items to show to the visitors and VIPs, and that is Melanie Zek. Uh, Melanie is also a musician and an expert in several areas, including the music in Scottish American utopian communities. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks, everyone. So what was the most fun part for you of doing that display for the tribute to Irish American women? Oh, Steve, that's a loaded question. I was brand new at the library at the time of this display. And, you know, I've always enjoyed studying the music of the British Isles. But more specifically, I really like to look at how the musical traditions cross the Atlantic. So from the British Isles to the United States. And so... When I got the opportunity to really dig into our collections and create a display of this magnitude, I was ready to rock and roll. Yeah, that was awesome. And you did a great job. Well, thanks. (laughs) Now, which recording are you going to talk about with us today? I'm going to talk about Eileen Gannon, who was a native of St. Louis, Missouri. She's one of the foremost harp players in the world. She comes from a musical family that has been at the forefront of the St. Louis Irish music community for many years. Now, the family business is 
St. Louis Irish Arts, and it's a music school and presenting organization run by Eileen's mother, Helen. Eileen spent most of her summers growing up studying with heart masters in Ireland and eventually learned, earned both a bachelor's degree in music performance from St. Louis University and a master's degree in ethnomusicology from the University of Limerick. She has won most of the awards available to an Irish harp player, most crucially the Senior All-Ireland Harp title. Wow, she's a very accomplished person and musician, it sounds like. Um, how does the Irish harp differ from the concert harp? Oh, now that's a good question. You know, organology is one of those subjects, the study of instruments, uh, boundless. The modern Irish harp is a recent adaptation of a medieval instrument. The traditional harp of medieval Ireland and Scotland had a huge sound box carved from a solid block of wood and a heavy curved neck and four pillar. It was all designed to bear a lot of tension because the strings were made of brass. Now, this harp continued to be played until the end of the 17th century, and much of the surviving harp music comes from that era. So it has some things in common with Irish folk music, but also much in common with Baroque music. The disappearance of aristocratic patrons, in addition to changes in musical styles, caused the instrument to more or less die out by the end of the 18th century, but not before much of the music was transcribed. So we have 18th century manuscripts of many Irish harp pieces. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the harp was revived, but with new style harps, they had gut strings. And now they use nylon strings, which sound different, but are way more practical. They also have tuning levers. So the harp is tuned diatonically, but you can alter each string by a half step to get it into the right key. This is interesting when you're playing it, because you can set it in advance to have the to the key your tune is in. Right. But if there are any accidentals, you have to move the levers while you're playing the harp, which can be a challenge. Yeah, it's always kind mm -hmm. of a nail biter when there's an accidental placed in a tune during a lively passage because the player has to like move their hands <laughs> up to the levers and <laughs> move them and then get back to playing. So um, yeah, so it's a it, it's a very cool instrument. So, um, so Melanie, what are we going to hear? Well, this is a clip from a concert that the Gannon family gave at the Library of Congress back in 2006. Eileen Gannon, uh, she plays two tunes. Uh, O'Carolan's Receipt is attributed to the Irish harper and composer Turlock O'Carolan, who lived from 1670 until 1738, and who is said to have written the melody for his friend John Stafford. It's an excellent example of a planksteen which is an air written in honor of a friend or patron. Eileen never gives a name for the jig she plays after it, but Neil Gannon mentioned it in the concert that it was his favorite jig. So following a long-standing tradition in Irish music, we've called it Neil Gannon's favorite. So it's an example of that older Baroque style repertoire that I mentioned, followed by a more modern Irish folk tune. Wonderful, let's hear it.
job. There you go. So again, two tunes on Irish harp by Eileen Gannon. And now it's getting time we thank our guests, Melanie Zach and Jennifer Cutting. Yes, thanks to both of you. It was a pleasure to be here. Oh, same here. This was fun. And we also want to thank Betsy Peterson, who was on a little bit earlier, as well as John Gold, our engineer, and all our friends who deploy this podcast at the Library of Congress. And, of course, all the musicians as well. Now, I think you have one more tune to play us out, Steve. Yes, this is from my old friend, the fiddler Liz Carroll from Chicago. I've known Liz since about 1990, but I've known of her for much longer. And one pleasant aspect of coming to work at the American Folklife Center in 2005 was that the very first concert I worked on that year in our homegrown series was Liz Carroll and John Doyle. Liz uh, is one of the foremost fiddle players and composers in traditional Irish music. She's a native of Chicago, but her parents were born in Ireland. And in 1975, she won the Senior All-Ireland Championship on fiddle. Liz Carroll has achieved many honors since then, including a 1994 National Heritage Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. So as you may remember, I mentioned before that the Irish musician Mick Maloney, was Paul Brady's bandmate in the Johnstons, and in 1973, when the band broke up, he decided to stay in the U.S. to study folklore. Well, by 1977, he was a field worker for the American Folklife Center, and he recorded Liz Carroll and her musical partner, Tommy McGuire, playing a set of reels with a spoons player in Chicago as part of the center's Chicago Ethnic Arts Project. So let's hear Liz Carroll and friends with a set of reels to wind up the show.
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.